Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzak, and this is another season, I guess, another run of episodes of Untenure Tracks. I'm really excited for everybody to get the chance to hear uh, the great conversations I've had with people over the past several weeks. Um, we've got episodes banked uh, through the end of 2020, if we make it to the end of, of 2020. Um, so, yeah, you know, you're not listening to this to hear me ramble on. Well, I guess technically you are. Um, but at any rate, this is a conversation I had with Dr. Lisa Fuller about a very timely <laughs> conversation, a very timely topic on bioethics and political philosophy. This is episode 52 of On Tenure Tracks. to have events uh, related to bioethics 
uh, at my college where like students will come and learn about different issues. And one of them uh, was in fact on vaccines last year that we had. So, because uh, I was working on this topic um, and we had a panel where there was a bunch of different kind of uh, ethical, legal, theological kind of views um, that students could hear about. Um, so the project is uh, partly to take vaccine refusers seriously, which has, uh, from an ethical point of view, which has not always been the case. Uh, a lot of times people uh, historically have thought, well, what we need is more education. Uh, so that is a kind of platonic view, right? If we only help them to understand, then they will see the light, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, or uh, uh, to focus on availability, which is not an insignificant issue, right? If people don't have insurance, then they mm. can't, you know, um, have access to vaccinations. So that's a, a certain group of under-vaccinated um, people and children, um, and that's often because they move around a lot or they have spotty access to insurance, Um so this has been the kind of more traditional approach. Um, and then uh, over, I guess, you know, pretty much since 2016, it's been clear that some different forces are um, at work. Uh, the pockets of vaccine refusal are not in um, necessarily less advantaged communities. Uh, Southern California, for instance, not, you know, those pockets of places where if they're not Typically, they're in pretty well-off communities. Um, and some recent work, uh, quite good sociological work, uh, has shown that, you know, they're a pretty, at least middle class. Uh, the typical kind of anti-vaxxer family is pretty middle class. Um, so what's going on, right? I mean, uh, it's not enough to say that people are not intelligent or they're irrational or... You know, um, there's nothing interesting in that explanation, and it's clearly uh, uh, kind of, that's also kind of elitist, and it just doesn't problematize it correctly, I think. Mm -hmm. But it is, like, it's an ethical issue. It's a public health issue. Mm -hmm. You can't get people on board. Uh, you um, increasingly are allowing people to put other people in harm's way. So this is what I'm kind of worrying over last kind of fall and um, Christmas or around Christmas time. And I throw out what at the time is not that well received an idea that um, uh, people are taking on that anti-vax uh, views as a political identity. And I'm actually at a conference not that long after that having to make arguments to this effect. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I'm going to have to spend very long making arguments to that effect now. <laughs> us having seen the mask issue yeah. right, uh, with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So that part of the, uh, of the article is going to be somewhat foreshortened uh, with only uh, you know, a whole bunch of examples will be provided and then I can probably <laughs> move on. Uh, <laughs> which is kind of interesting when the world makes your argument for you. Yeah, uh, and so, uh, but yeah, some people were somewhat skeptical of that claim back in like February or early March of last year. Um, you know, but the idea was that it was a kind of in-group, out-group marker. Right? Yeah, and it's much more important 
to be kind of accepted by the, you know, yoga moms at Starbucks that you hang around with and who look after your kids and, Mm -hmm. you know, who go, you know, you go to dinner parties with than it is to, you know, that your high school science teacher told you something back in whatever or your college, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. science professor taught you something uh, back in the day. Like, when are you going to see that? Like, that's (laughs) not socially relevant to you. Yeah. Um, So that was a kind of hypothesis. And then so the, uh, for why people were doing it um, and why it was kind of gaining traction in that way. And then... um, if you give an alternative explanation, so if you give a um, political explanation, then um, you shine a different light on the question of uh, people using these, uh, what they call philosophical exemptions or personal belief exemptions to um, uh, allow themselves to get the benefits of, say, public education or Head Start or being part of uh, various um, kind of government-run daycare centers and so on um, while not having to vaccinate uh, because of the basis of their belief is now a political belief and not like a personal kind Mm -hmm. of ethical or religious belief Um, and so that's where you need all that kind of backstory because uh, that's the wrong backstory for those those, uh, those, um, exemptions Mm -hmm. those exemptions are conscientious objector exemptions um, which I, in the course of my research, found out actually conscientious objection um, originates with anti-vaxxers back way back in history um, in the UK, uh, and not with um, anti-war protesters. No kidding. So what? Yeah. I so know what, vaccination was not vaccination. It was whatever they called the thing where you. Um, okay, of course, the word escapes me now, but uh, where. Uh, you take a bit of the like disease and actually like uh, apply it to the person, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> right? They uh, they did that for soldiers um, back in the day because uh, like it was you know in the army that was a really big issue. And if you were fighting a war, say between England and France, uh, you didn't want your soldiers to die from it. <laughs> Uh, and people had a big issue with it. Um, just, just to pick a random, a random country that England might be at war with. Right. <laughs> a couple hundred years ago, or more. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So uh, so conscientious objection. You know, bringing it up to the present day, uh, we think of it mostly as an anti-war um, uh, sort of set of laws and regulations, um, and then only lately more applicable to these kinds of things um, and also to maybe sending your kids to school after the age of 16 for like Amish yeah. like that um, and that's why you know and people are entitled to kind of opt out if they yeah. feel very strongly um, but notably you, you're not able to be a conscientious objector if you have a political problem with the war that's being fought. Yeah. What you're supposed to do um, in that case is, you know, vote. <laughs> and this is the same case with, this is the same as with certain public health laws, right? So if you don't like public health policy yeah. in your state, then you should vote out the person who put it in. Yeah. And vote in a new policy. Uh, you should not claim an exemption 
for yourself personally. Yeah. Uh, so it's the wrong style of uh, belief to fit the justification that we've traditionally given for um, exemptions. Mm -hmm. And many states have sort of started cracking down, and notably California and New York, um, because they're so big, big, and just making, just saying, we're not going to have these personal belief objection, uh, exemptions anymore because we can't, we're not getting the numbers. We're not getting the herd immunity anymore. Yeah. Uh, and we can't afford not to have herd yeah. immunity. Uh, and there's been quite, that's that's in the last 12 months that mm -hmm. happened, um, and there's been quite a lot of pushback. Mm -hmm. And we are going to have this fight about COVID. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we already are, kind of, right? Right. I mean, the, um, that 30... That thirty-five percent of the country that you can reliably count on to to vote uh, for the wrong thing and to believe in <laughs> in the wrong and like that thirty-five percent that's just reliably going to go against the grain, right? Is going to say no, we don't want it because it's part of a conspiracy, right? And the question is, can you have a deep sort of ethical personal belief? Right? It has to be the kind of belief by which you would be betraying yourself sort of as a human being, uh, mm -hmm. akin to a kind of religious belief, right? Like, if you mm -hmm. believe you're going to hell if you do something, yeah, that is has personal consequences for you that run very far and deep. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you have ethical beliefs of that type, right, um, that means that you, it's going to be very difficult for you to live with yourself mm -hmm. if you compromise those beliefs. Yeah. So the question is, can you have a deep and abiding ethical belief uh, that you should not take this particular vaccine or a couple of particular vaccines while at the same time believing if you need a kidney transplant that you should be first on the list? <laughs> what is it about vaccines or this particular vaccine or the fact that the vaccines are mandatory mm -hmm. Uh, that makes this somehow ethical and somehow yeah. so deeply compromising for you as a person that distinguishes it from other medical interventions. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's a hard sell, you know, to make that argument. Um, and I think people have kind of gotten away with it, kind of, because it's been a very low bar for evidence up to now, and mm -hmm. in some cases, no requirement of evidence whatsoever, mm -hmm. just to say that this is what I believe. Um, no requirement that you show consistency across the yeah. set of beliefs um, or anything. And that's only because we haven't had a lot of people who took advantage of the exemption. Yeah. Um, and it, now that we don't have the numbers, mm -hmm. we've got to ask ourselves, like, do we want to raise the bar? Yeah. Yeah, and it, it seems to, like, a uh and I don't know how how far back you can trace this as like a cultural phenomenon, but like the general belief that people have that they're entitled to their opinion and their opinion is automatically right, and that you don't have you don't have the right to challenge them because it's just their opinion. I mean, I I've had I've had conversations with my undergraduates before where I've said to them, if you tell me something is your opinion. I don't care, <laughs> right? Like it's you're just saying that like, it's not a, it's not a shield. It's not a shield, right? Like if I tell you in my opinion the grass is blue, 
and the grass is green, like my opinion is wrong, and you you should call me out for my my incorrect opinion. Um, but if I say the I perceive the grass is blue because of you know something that's happened with my eyes, right? Then I have evidence to say like to me I'm perceiving the light coming off the grass is blue. Um, so I I I have that conversation all the time. I feel like where they will say, well, in my opinion, uh, welfare has ruined America, or in my opinion. X, Y, and Z about the criminal justice system. Well, like I don't care about your opinion. Your opinion isn't it isn't relevant. Like you need evidence, and I wonder if it's like a middle class thing, like because you mentioned the 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 yoga mom section of society. Like, are these people who have ever really had their opinions challenged? Well, um, certainly. So this kind of uh, sort of discussion in bioethics is. is um, neatly kind of hooking up with some other areas um, of discussion and philosophy on the uh, prevalence of misinformation and conspiracy theories and why in epistemology why people um, adopt these kind of other attitudes these attitudes like pro-attitudes towards uh, uh, sort of dubious (laughs) claims, uh, right, that don't, aren't uh, susceptible to the kinds of evidence we would normally uh, take to be convincing, um, or different sort of, I think this is kind of normally how it's discussed, like different standards of evidence or uh, taking different standards to be like epistemologically sound in Mm -hmm. that kind of knowledge community. Um, I don't want to overstep my areas of expertise, but that's the, you know, I mean, there's just sort of different sets of standards um, and so there's a kind of a whole discussion going on over here about that, right, about why would why do people um, uh, subscribe to these communities in which these are the standards for what, what is true and what you should, or at least what you should believe as a reasonable person um, you know most, pe- most people have gone to college or have some college and they're not completely uneducated people many of them are professionals of different types some of them are medical professionals which is a little bit scary mm-hmm. um, and so presumably they deal with evidence all the time in a completely other way mm-hmm. that uh, just doesn't is, is completely dissonant with how they deal with it in this context um, and so there is this sense that um, you're sort of entitled to have this view um, and there's something sort of oddly uh, that people seem to think that the, your entitlement to the view somehow allows you um, to have the entitlement to not only reject a vaccine but if that's uh, uh, what you wish to do also put other people in harm's way. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the thing about vaccines is that you can tolerate a small amount, a small group of people who don't get Mm -hmm. vaccinated. And everybody seems to think that they're entitled to be part of that small group. Uh, Mm -hmm. But the truth is you have to have a very high level of vaccination in order for it to work. Yeah. Um, So Usually, those people are like babies under the age of six months. <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, yep. Immunocompromised people. Like, there's a bunch of people who just are in that group. You don't get to, like, opt into it. Yeah. Um, and so the people who are opting in are, like, this is a slim um, 
uh, optional group, uh, and everyone seems to think that they're entitled to be part of that group um, when that's just not possible. So if the group if the group of people opting out of vaccines gets too large, you are in fact putting other people um, at risk. And we don't allow people to do that in society. I mean, that's an issue of you putting uh, other people in harm's way, and that's an issue for you know regulation. Mm-hmm. That's what the law's for. Yeah. That's what policy is for. Um, and so your view then doesn't come into it uh, at that point, right? I mean, you're entitled to a view about vaccines, but if you're going to make me sick, mm-hmm. your view is completely irrelevant at that stage. So there is like a you know there is this kind of idea that uh, somehow your entitlement to a view entitles you to also put other people at risk, and we're seeing this with masks, and it's almost as if people do either they don't want to admit that they're putting other people at risk, or they don't want to admit that they just don't care, <laughs> right? Yeah, harsh, but I think. That's what it comes down to. If you really admit that that you you know other people deserve protection and you're not willing to do it, what does yeah. that say about you? I don't think it's harsh. I honestly don't think it's harsh. I think it's I think it's a logical conclusion of so many other facets of our society that we've just we've just been cool with, uh, and have been able to say like, well, I'm just one person. I'm not really contributing to that much of the problem. I, if I don't wear a mask, going to the drugstore it's no big deal or whatever um I, I think we're just we're really bad at scaling up anymore and thinking about like the larger picture i mean i, I mean i'm sure you've seen lots of people kind of conjecturing about how how would like world war ii level like rationing fly today and like the the answer is obviously it wouldn't <laughs> right the government tells you to turn your lights off at 9 p.m so you know you don't get bombed. Um, there would be people having, like, installing floodlights on their houses. <laughs> to, to yeah, it would come down to enforcement. Yeah. I think they look, this is what we're doing, and everybody, there would be no, um, there would be almost no, uh, like, ability to just get people to do it willingly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that this is the fight we're going to have, right? It's going to be, this is going to be mandated, and people are going to go en masse and say that they have a personal belief objection. Mm-hmm. for the COVID vaccine. And so my argue, argument is going to be, show me the money. Yeah. You're going to go before a tribunal and mm-hmm. give evidence. Yeah. to have witnesses. You're, <laughs> there's going to have to be history. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, this is, so this is what you do. Uh, you know, so if you want to, say, emigrate to the U.S. and, you, you know, they ask you about your relationship with the person you're married to and you have to show evidence that you've been together and all of these things, you have to do that for immigration. Yeah. But you do not have to do that <laughs> for this. Like, yeah. You can show evidence, right? If you, you know, if you're the kind of, if you belong to a religion that doesn't allow for anything but faith healing, you can show evidence of that. Yeah. But typically speaking, we have not had a large surge of people joining those religions in the last year or four years. That's not where this phenomenon is coming from. Um, And oftentimes, I actually think that that's a mistake. I think many people think that those are the people who um, are largely responsible for Mm -hmm. the anti-vax movement. Yeah. Um, And that's not true. Um, Actually, on that panel that I mentioned, 
friend of mine the, who does um, theology and ethics um, did a, a short talk and said, you know, like the vast majority of religions support vaccination, and they even try to make it available to their, um, to, you know, their members because mm-hmm. they want to show keep people safe and say, like, look, you know, and you also have to, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, and vaccination helps uh, that, yeah. pro- you know, that process also. So it's a, there's a lot of um, I think misunderstanding of who is responsible for the lower rates of vaccination. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, we need to talk about this as a political problem and how we can get that problem solved and mm-hmm. not um, and hold people responsible um, and hold people ethically responsible as like members of the citizenry um, and not um sort of have this kind of more rosy picture of people, you know, just not knowing any better or, yeah. you know, right. I think that that, that ship has sailed. Yeah. I was going to ask about that. Um, a few minutes ago when you talked about how oftentimes we think of the vaccination issue as just needing more education and you, you laughed at me because I probably sighed very audibly <laughs> and I wrote down more education in quotes. Uh, so it's come up, uh, in a lot of conversations that I've been having on the on the show, um, the I guess like the the quality or the purpose of education that people receive, um, and I was wondering if we could if we could shift to to that um, part of the conversation for a minute because I I think it's really interesting to think about this from an ethical standpoint because in my background in sociology and criminology. Um, like I keep going back to the book Radical Hope by Kevin Gannon where he talks about how the neo-Nazis marching in Charlottesville were all college-educated, or many of them were college-educated. And so what, what then is the purpose of a college education if it's producing neo-Nazis, <laughs> right? Is that not evidence then that uh, at least the schools that they, they graduated from are, are failures, um, if not all of academia <laughs> writ large? Is, is that not a failure? So I, I wonder if like, there's a way to kind of shift that conversation towards this issue of, of bioethics and vaccinations and, and what do people really mean when they say this is just a matter of more education. Does that make sense? Yeah, so um, what I meant when I said that was uh, sometimes... Um, the like the platonic view is people are you know you you know you might say that people have unreasonable fears mm-hmm. right things they've heard on the internet and things like that um, and so it's not a matter of you know did they go to college or you know whatever but maybe they're just you know you're a new mom or a new dad and you're um, you know you've heard some things and you know like maybe you're a philosopher like me and you don't really know about <laughs> this type of stuff and. Um, you know, you're kind of hyper-concerned, and so you have unreasonable fears, and those are more likely to kind of take over mm-hmm. your decision-making in these kind of fraught areas. And so, you know, maybe you're a pediatrician or, you know, some kinds of other, like, at the appropriate time in your life, right, when this is going to be a concern for you, maybe there needs to be, like, public health messages. And, more, you know, coming from the right people, there needs to be more trust uh, trusted sources of information and education that will um, 
give you the kind of information you need to make an informed decision at that, you know, at the right time, in the right place, mm-hmm. uh, kind of in the right way. It's not really a matter of like what is your educational background, but enough to kind of give you the tools you need to make a good decision at that time, mm-hmm. um, no matter what your background is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that you don't go to Facebook or, you know, whatever, and then get freaked out and um, then kind of everything kind of gets muddied and you're not really able to um, sort of think clearly. Um, and you don't kind of get sucked into this, like, should I be doing what everyone else is doing? But really just kind of thinking through the issues with a kind of reliable source of information. And this is the problem is that we have so much information now that it's, I think, very difficult, no matter how well educated you are, to sort through it. Um, and people are really susceptible, especially at vulnerable points in their lives, uh, to sources of information that sound like the thing that they need, mm-hmm. rather than you know whatever might um, be the thing that is actually true, um, or uh, in the thing that maybe is good for society, right? So maybe uh, maybe. They just don't like it when their kid gets a bunch of needles all at once. Like, no kid likes that, and nobody wants their child to suffer. Mm-hmm. And they just think, well, maybe I can opt out of this, and, you know, I'll still be fine. And my I won't, my child won't cry, and I won't, you know, I don't have to go a million appointments and sit around in the waiting room and, like, all, you know, all yeah. the things. Um, and um, why should I do this for society anyway, right? I think some of that um, comes down to not just formal education, uh, although it would be nice if formal education was more kind of oriented towards the common good, uh, but a lot of that comes down to upbringing too, right? Um, If you're not being made to do it, which you probably would if you sent your kids to public school, um, but if you're not being made to do it, why are you supposed to care? Mm Right, um, and that you know, either someone has to have convinced you that it's important to care about other people at some point before that moment. Right? <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, hopefully, teaching people about ethics at some point and about the common good, uh, high school level or college level, contributes to that project. Um, but a lot of it is just you know. Um, what you learn at home too yeah it's an interesting way to frame like larger dissatisfaction with healthcare is like here's one way for people to push back against this kind of gargantuan industry that I I don't think most people are are satisfied with and it just kind of turns into uh, I'm not going to get vaccinated and but I'm also going to simultaneously fight to defend the right to have my doctor and not, not whatever I conceive of as socialized medicine. Um, even though I am deeply dissatisfied with my doctor, uh, I, I feel like it's an attitude to have, like it's, it's just interesting, right? Instead of, instead of voting for, like you said, voting for politicians who have better healthcare policies, um, and, could look at the vaccination issue in a reasonable scientific way um, like 
controlling for, you know, uh, health insurance um, problems that I'm sure are are pretty rife there. Um, just to say, like, yeah, I'm just not going to do it, and everybody else be damned. Well, it's true that um, one of the reasons why many people... So I, so this is one of the reasons why uh, many of the conspiracy theories actually get off the ground, is that people are very dissatisfied with their health care, um, in particular in the U.S., because it's such a big money industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so people know that Big Pharma all over the world makes a lot of money, but... Big Pharma and the and politicians in the U.S. Um, and uh, the healthcare industry as a whole is oriented. Uh, health and um, health insurance industry are all oriented towards making money off the backs of sick people here. Mm-hmm. Um, why you should trust all of those people at all is a good question. That's yeah. not. I mean, the fact that people are distrustful of all of these industries and their connections to each other. Um, I mean, that's a sensible thing to, mm-hmm. to um, be distrustful of. Uh, and then when they start saying, oh, and by the way, by law, you have to do this and that and the other thing, including get vaccinated, you start to think, okay, so this is just lining pockets. That's what it's doing. Um, and so partly um, the powers that uh, are actually um, exploiting people by uh, encouraging a for-profit system Mm -hmm. are extra, again, exploiting them by uh, introducing conspiracy conspiracy theories that encourage kind of anti-vax conspiracy theories and uh, encourage them to believe those things, too. So they take the vulnerability and distrust that people experience as part of a for-profit system and they make it worse by um, encouraging people not to believe in science or you know other things where they could actually protect themselves with the medicine or um, and this is just uh, you know it's it's hard to believe that people a system has your interests at heart uh, on the one hand and is making a fortune off of you on the other hand when you are at your most vulnerable. Uh, it's just very hard to hold those two things together, um, and we're seeing that it's not working. Yeah, in the pandemic, right? Uh, and the fact that people who are actually you think might actually have your best interests at heart, like nurses and doctors, right? Because they actually minister to uh, <laughs> care for <laughs> hands-on to sick people, have taken pay cuts because COVID is not a big money treatment. Mm-hmm demonstrates uh, the extent to which the, you know, the whole system is so corrupted mm-hmm. that the people doing the actual work can't get paid. Um, so it's not that those are unreasonable fears, it's just that those are being exploited um, for mm-hmm. uh, you know, what are obviously anti-social ends. Um, and people yeah. do that. People feel abused, and they feel like the you know at their most vulnerable, they are not in control at all of the healthcare that they have. Like you can't even find out how much something's going to cost before you decide to have it. Yeah, nobody knows. <laughs> right? <laughs> not a single person can ever know. Yeah, that is. I mean, not only is that ridiculous. From a healthcare standpoint, that's ridiculous. From a market standpoint, yep. 
it's the most messed up, right? And so you can't fault people for feeling upset, mm-hmm. but then, you know, there's this, if it, you can exploit it for political gain. Over the last four years, there's been plenty of candidates who've decided to um, stand on the side of anti-vax and see how many people they can get to mm-hmm. the run on that basis. Like, it's really clearly moving in that direction. Uh, but it's, I mean, it's it's a disaster for us as a country. Yeah. So can we uh, talk about how um, how are you able to bring your scholarship into the classroom? Have you have you had success with this topic? Oh sure, um, and uh, well, so whenever I, so I um, I do I mostly research uh, things that happen in real life. Uh, my uh, my whole interest in ethics. Uh, from the time I was an undergrad has been um, in applied ethics mm-hmm. or uh, topics that are considered kind of public philosophy topics because um, I don't think there's anything interesting in um, thinking about ethics unless it can help us to solve actual problems. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, like, uh, that's what's interesting about it. Um, you know, ethical conflicts are interesting when people find themselves at kind of like inflection points in their lives where it really matters what decision they make. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't always know it when you're doing that, but oftentimes you do know it and you find yourself without the tools to resolve those problems. Um, and so uh, this topic um, I've discussed with the students um, uh, and I also in every, like in starting pretty much in the second week of every one of my bioethics classes, I have two. Um, one that deals more with the kind of doctor-patient relationship, and one that deals more with kind of um, justice in the healthcare system, mm-hmm. so like more of the kind of things we were just talking about. Um, from like the second week, we deal with case studies every week. Mm-hmm. And so, it's so that people can, uh, the students can find their way into uh, the problems and the force of those problems and the force of the tools that we're learning in philosophy by using them to try to resolve the conflicts. That doesn't mean that there's one right way to resolve them or yeah. even that they can't always be resolved. But if you see the force of the difficulty, then you can kind of see the purpose of studying concepts that will help you to at least start to pull apart what it is that's going on. Um, so, uh, so that's why, and so that's what's so fun. I mean, also it's just fun, right? I mean, you kind of put yourself in the shoes of other people. Um, you try to kind of parse out why are people doing what they're doing? Um, what are their options in the scenario? You know, it gives you a chance to use some kind of imagination about, you know, kind of what someone could do um, from that scenario. Um, also, it's a good way to kind of generate empathy for yeah. people who aren't like you, right? Um, my first instruction is always assume that the person is rational, right? Who's admit, everyone in the case study is rational. They're doing what they're doing for a good reason. You just don't know what it is yet. Mm-hmm. So come up with a reason. <laughs> Tell me a story about why this person is making sense, not why they're you know <laughs> pathological or something. Um, and uh, and all of the cases pretty much are taken from real life. 
so in bioethics journals, you can find cases that have been anonymized mm-hmm. um, and then are published. Uh, and when I can't find a good one um, on a topic, then I'll often look at journalism. There's a lot of good um, kind of science journalism um, that you know, take, uh, you know, we'll do, they'll do like a long piece on a particular problem and there'll be some like little vignettes mm-hmm. in there um, about particular patients or, um, and so you can kind of, kind of extract some of those from like a longer journal, you know, um, journalistic piece, the New York Times or, you know, or something, um, and use that as the kind of basis for the case study. Um, and and uh, so I try to get them to work out. Um, I, you know, often, if it's a real life, if they're real life cases and I know uh, how they were resolved, I like to leave it as like a cliffhanger. Yeah. And get them to try to resolve it, <laughs> and then say, "Oh, by the way, this is what really happened to that person." Yeah, um, <laughs> they kind of like that. Um, this or this is what the hospital really did. Or yeah. This is, you know, um, uh, so they they kind of like that. That's the big reveal <laughs> part of the proceedings. Um, uh, and so they, I mean, I think they really take to the idea that they're, you know, when you introduce things that have happened in the real world. That they're learning something, both about how you know about the world, but also about like how these pro- you know what kind of problems are out there, and um, you know how to think about them. Because uh, I get a lot of student, most of my students are not philosophy students; um, they're maybe nursing students or health science students, uh, and so uh, at least they are now. Uh, they weren't always. Sometimes you know we also have an ethics requirement mm-hmm. where I work, so. Sometimes you'll just get people taking it because it's an ethics course. Yeah. Um, but a lot of them have an interest kind of in the subject matter kind of more generally. So they are interested in, you know, kind of what yeah. problems happen on the ground. Um, so the most um, on-the-nose, I guess, uh, exercise or kind of case study that we did in class most recently is uh, last fall I was doing the justice and healthcare class and one of the units is on resource allocation, and we did uh, we talked about um, resource allocation of vaccines in a pandemic. And how did that go? <laughs> students, you know, so in the article they broke up society roughly into like five different groups, like uh, first responders, and you know. Um, frontline workers and people, you know, children and people, uh, you know, elderly people and immunocompromised people and so on. And we had them, like, put them in rank order and tell us why um, they have them in that order mm-hmm. in different groups. <laughs> and then we had a pandemic in March. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm sure they remembered that exercise <laughs> uh, when that happened. Hopefully. Um, so one thing that I like to ask people about uh, are um, like myths that they have encountered that, uh, or, or myths that you find yourself having to, to debunk semester after semester. And I'm, I'm curious if that's something that comes up in ethics courses or, or in bioethics at all. Um, so like, I, like with my background, it's often like every semester is, there's a lot of time spent saying that like, not only poor people commit crime and that white people can commit crime too and, and things like that, right? That um, students who have wanted to be cops since they were, you know, 
four years old come in sometimes having that that belief like a like a real steadfast belief um so i'm just curious if that's something that if there's something similar in in what you do uh well the the most the most stubborn uh problem is uh people's ethical relativism (laughs) their belief in ethical relativism so um their belief that uh right that everyone has their own personal ethics and that they're e- all equally good. <coughs> okay. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, it doesn't take a lot to convince people that that flame is too broad. So, for instance, all you have to say is, well, if my personal belief is that eating babies is fine, <laughs> Is that okay with you, especially if it's your baby? <laughs> yeah. And I they're did. like, no. <laughs> and I'm like, right. Okay. <laughs> so there's at least one thing. <laughs> you can right? agree on. <laughs> that is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's like just wrong. You should not do it. No mm-hmm. one should do it. Okay. So we can build on that, right? Um, and so, you know, when I... so look, I mean, so what I say is, like, look, there are better and worse answers in ethics, just the way there are better and worse answers in a lot of fields. Yeah. Um, and theories, you know, so we talk about theories, and so, you know, especially a lot, since a lot of my students have a science background, mm-hmm. so look, you know that science, scientific theories um, can, you know, some are better than others in explaining the thing that they're trying to explain. Well, what are we trying to explain in ethics? trying to explain our practice of talking about right and wrong, good and bad, virtue and vice, what to do, what's the right thing to do in a particular situation. Um, and some theories do better at helping us sort out those problems, and other ones are totally off the wall, and, and in some cases, but not others. So we have to evaluate theories as well as using them, right, the same way you might do um, in science. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we use them as tools to help us kind of work through these problems. Um, but we use them together, right? You know, if you go, you know, you already know this. If someone's trying to steal your car and you go over uh, and say, hey, man, like, you can't do that. You're perfectly confident that you're right about that. Like, you're not, <laughs> oh, man, I don't know. Maybe it is okay for him to steal my car. Yeah. Um, like, you're not questioning that. Um, so, yeah, you know, we're in bioethics dealing with the hard cases, and so there might be a lot of disagreement, but that's not because you know there's not better and worse answers, it's because they're hard questions. Yeah, you know, the baby eating, the car stealing, <laughs> we're pretty confident we know what the answer is about those in those questions. Yeah, so you kind of have to get through a little bit of that at the beginning, oftentimes. Uh, in order for people to say, oh, I see, okay, like, there are principles, there are, you know, ways of talking and arguing that make sense, and other ones that don't, right? Yeah. Uh, But, uh, because a lot of them are kind of charged issues, at the beginning you get a lot of, like, people like, well, this is, you know, what I believe in, and it's like, well, but, you know, you know, in philosophy, and we're very democratic. It's not about you can't make arguments from authority. You have to make arguments from reason. Yeah. 
you know, you're entitled to your view, but you have to back it up. Yep. That's yeah. all. And you don't have, and don't tell, I don't care if some famous philosopher had that view or not. You have the view, you back it up. Yeah. That's all I'm asking. So there is that um, issue uh, a little bit. Um, and, I mean, in philosophy more generally, there's tons of white maps. <laughs> so I don't know if, uh, if there's even time for us to talk about those. Uh, but uh, I do teach intro also. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I do is I teach an uh, excerpted version of Bertrand Russell's Value of Philosophy mm-hmm. article. It's a chapter from one of his books, actually. Uh, because the students all have to take intro philosophy where I teach, and you can just tell that some of them are like, why am I doing this? Yeah. Uh, because there's this idea that philosophy is just frivolous. Yeah. Right? That, uh, that it has no value to the person who's doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also there's the myth that it's supposed to be easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that one really is upsetting to the students. Oh, no. I teach I teach intro sociology <laughs> two two sections every every fall. And I used to uh before the first exam I would tell I would I would ask them, how many of you have seen the movie Rocky Four? And it's a very dated reference and, and like a few of them would raise their hands. And I, I would sometimes I would show the famous scene from Rocky Four where Ivan Drago kills Apollo Creed. <laughs> and I and I said, I would say, you know, I understand that you guys have a hard time reading me as an instructor because we joke around a lot and uh, class seems pretty easygoing. Um, but when you come into this first exam, uh, you're going to come in like dancing into class like Apollo Creed, and I am, I am Ivan Drago. And if you fail, you fail, and and many of you are going to fail because you you believe that sociology is this easy blow off class. And then they laugh at me, and then they fail the test. <laughs> and they come back and are like, wow, you were right. So, yeah, I totally, totally get that. They do the first reading, and they're like, what does this mean? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I understand right? these words individually, but not in the order that they're in. <laughs> yeah, um, and they're like, it, and they'll be like, man, this is long, and it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, I, I get that a lot. So I actually, uh, you know, I say to people, you know, I have chosen these specific things. I'm not giving you big overview textbook. I'm not, I'm giving you exactly what you need to read and exactly what you need to know. And we're going to talk about all of the stuff in class so you'll know what it says in time to write about it and, you know, Mm -hmm. on the test. I'm not giving you extra stuff so you have to wonder, do I need to know this? Do Mm -hmm. I not? Right? Just get through it, give it a first pass, and then we'll talk about it. Because um, especially for, you know, non-philosophy students, it can be, like, pretty dense, pretty difficult. And, like, so we're going to do all close reading of the stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't don't skim it over. I know, especially if you're from other disciplines, you know, that might be their usual way of doing it. I'm like, it's dense, just read it through. Don't skim through it. Mm-hmm. You know, give it your attention. But that's all it ever is, right? If it's eight pages, that's it. That's that's it for the week, eight pages. Yeah. Right? Um, and so they kind of, then they're like, oh, okay, I see. Right? So it's okay if it's hard, because I've given you just what you need. Yeah. Uh, you know, not a whole bunch of other stuff that's not going to turn up anywhere later. Yeah. You know, you need. 
Yeah. Um, but they, they'll be like, wow, that was hard. <laughs> That's why it's only eight pages. Like, <laughs> right? <laughs> you do have to know what's in. Yeah. Um, that's not a joke. So I'm curious for the for the students who are taking it as like a general education requirement who are who are sitting there questioning like why are they there? What do you tell them about the value of of taking a philosophy class? Well, I tell them what Bertrand Russell said, <laughs> right? <laughs> or I get them to tell me what Bertrand Russell said. What, what does Russell say? Um, I have no idea. <laughs> so uh, what he says is that um, well, it's a couple of different things, but. Uh, my line and what he says uh, is that doing philosophy changes you, the person. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you know, most philosophy does not have the questions you ask are questions about, like, the human condition that don't have definitive answers. They have a bunch of different kinds of answers that you can think about. Um, you know, like, do we have free will? Um, uh, what is the kind of nature of the self, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the existence of God, all those classic questions. Right? Yep. Um, questions about ethics, like, you know, how we should spend our lives, what the good life is. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have definitive answers. But also, we are sort of compelled to ask those questions as human beings. You're not going to get through your life without asking that. Um, questions about what the good, what the best society is, or what a good society is, what your obligations are, and that. Um, you know, they're going to come up. Yeah, they're coming up right now. Yeah, um, <laughs> right. You're not going to get away with that, not asking them as a human. So, first of all, we're compelled to ask those questions, and but also investigating the answers open us up to ways of thinking about the world that are not just kind of the ordinary ways that we've already been sort of socialized to think about things. They allow us to sort of venture out into uncertainty intellectually. Um, and that's a kind of changing of the person and transforming of the person, which is sort of beneficial to you because it allows you to see things from different perspectives and ultimately that allows you to be more free because you then will able be able to do this for other areas of your life, right? And make sort of enlarged your kind of set of choices, your ways of, you know, your set of val- potential values. Um, and so he, he rails against what he calls the practical man in this uh, piece, The Value of Philosophy. The person only concerned with, you know, his immediate material needs um, and who never asked the question, you know, are the things that I've been taught about, you know, what's real, about what's valuable, are they right? Mm-hmm. So that person is just enslaved to those um, beliefs that they've been taught by their society, right? They're not actually a self-determining being. They're just a cog in that machine. Uh, and so, you know, it makes it changes you, makes enlarges you as a human being. Um, and uh, he also says, and it reinvigorates your imagination, you know, to go out into the kind of intellectual uncertainty, um, and also reinvigorates the world in a, because it reintroduces like a sense of wonder into the world. Um, because you thought you knew everything, right? If you're the practical man, you think you know 
the answer to everything. But it turns out you hardly know anything about yeah. anything, even the world around you. Um, uh, and so I always use the example of Bishop Barkley, uh, who asks, how do you know that the, when you leave the room, that the room is still there when you can't see it? <laughs> I remember as an undergrad, like reading this and laughing and thinking, this is what this book is about, right? <laughs> the truth is, you don't know. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> no, you don't. Um, and uh, so now you're left with this, like, I don't know. Uh, that's a, right? <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah. So, you know, uh, there's a lot of things, a lot of questions that you think you have answers to that you don't actually have answers to at all. Uh, and so maybe, you know, it's like sort of looking at the world like it's a puzzle or like it's a series of kind of miracles, again, mm-hmm. not just kind of really mundane, filled with like obligations, like you gotta make money, you gotta pay bills, then you die. Yeah. I think that is the perfect place to end this. Okay. <laughs> uh, ruminating on what is freedom and trying to encourage people to have a sense of wonder. Thank you so much for taking time to do this with me today. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great. A lot of fun. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So, I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenure Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.